We uh, are at a historical and strategic juncture in our relationship with Tunisia. Here we have a, a, an opportunity that let's hope will not be fiddled away or foregone and missed to uh, establish a greater strategic partnership than we've had. Uh, the map does not exactly show it, but I think in all of our minds we have a map of North Africa and Tunisia is between Libya to the east and Algeria to the west. And yet all these years and decades of being next door to turmoil and uh, that other kind of oil, um, as well as the tension, instability, insecurity, and uh, a blanket term, the Islamist, so to speak, who are growing in number, growing in influence, growing in impact. And yet Tunisia is, is right in the middle of all of this. And we have a chance to make a difference together. To think that we can do it alone from here is not only naive, it's foolish, it's arrogant, it's, it's reckless, it's dangerous. Uh, we at the National Council have had 25 programs in Tunisia half American university students and half university professors and one delegation of museum directors uh, out of which came the museum in Denver uh, choosing to focus on Tunisia at considerable length. If you've not been to Tunisia, you are really missing something. My wife elbows me, sometimes she kicks me, um, and saying that, when are we going to retire and, and retire in Tunisia? <laughs> she really loves the place. She was the desk officer for Tunisia, Algeria, Egypt, Morocco, Libya for various times. And uh, she would love for us to retire there. The closest we've been able to do has been um, to have the shutters of our house painted in Tunisian blue. I don't know if you've ever been to Tunisia or seen pictures of it, but Sidi Bou Said is the, is the blue city. It's, blue, it's all blue and white. And uh, you can't find that color in any paint store in the nation's capital. So we have to take pictures to the paint store and just hold it there until they mix and mix and mix and mix until we, ah, now you've got it. So we, we had the shutters on our house uh, in Tunisian blue. So we look at it and think about it every day. Uh, Tunisia also has the most meticulous uh, cemetery for allied soldiers <coughs> killed in uh, World War II uh, that I've uh, ever visited. And it, it's a haunting uh, place <coughs> to, to visit and to ponder. Uh, what happened in Tunisia, what happened in Arab North Africa, what happened in terms of General Patton, what happened in terms of General Rommel, what happened in terms of the Nazi uh, push towards Egypt that finally stopped at the Battle of El Alamein. Um, and for those who are into culture and art, there is no museum anywhere in the world that has a third of the ceramics and uh, artwork that Tunisia has at the uh, Museum of <laughs> Bordeaux. Uh, if, if you do nothing else in Tunisia to go there. 
And then those of you who have read the book, The Arabist, by Robert Kaplan, on the cover is one Talcott Seeley. <laughs> and it's Talcott Seeley who um, is presenting his credentials uh, to the uh, president of, of Tunisia. Uh, Talcott Seeley was one of the last generation of Americans who were born and raised in the Arab world. And his passport, where it says place of birth, it was Beirut, Syria. Beirut, comma, Syria. Something to ponder uh, there. As Hafez al-Assad often pointed out to Talcott Seeley, who was also our ambassador to uh, Syria. Uh, we have the League of Arab States ambassador here, too. And we're, we're, we're lucky uh, in the uh, front row Sir, to, that you've honored us to be present here. Um, Arab North Africa is at one and the same time uh, Arab and African. It's also Islamic, it's Mediterranean, and it's uh, Atlantic. Uh, ambassador Gordon Brown, who's here, uh, served as our ambassador to Mauritania. Uh, he knows that well. And others have served in different embassies in Arab North Africa. Without further ado, I will uh, pass the baton, so to speak, to uh, Najib Ayachi to introduce our speakers and make his own remarks. Najib. Thank you, Dr. Anthony, for this, uh, for your remarks. Thank you for co-sponsoring this event on behalf of the uh, National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. Uh, you did listen to me when I said we should pay more attention to the North Africa region, to the Maghreb, which is also part of the Arab world, that world you care about. Thank you. Um, I would like also to thank His Excellency Mohamed Shlaifa, Ambassador of Tunisia to the U.S., for his presence here, for joining us. Uh, thank you also, Acting uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary Haviland, for accepting to participate in our conference. Welcome. Uh, thank you also to Ms. Caroline Franz, Senior Fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics, for accepting to share with us today some of her extensive knowledge and expertise related to the MENA region. And many thanks also to the Peterson Institute for hosting this event. Thank you all for coming. Uh, Tunisia, where um, the social uprising of what has been branded the Arab Spring started in 2011, seems today uh, the best equipped country to move toward, uh, to, move, to move forward, sorry, on the path of political stability and hopefully economic uh, growth, recovery and growth. Uh, this is mostly due to the fact that the North African nation has adopted only a few weeks ago and three years after the collapse of the previous autocratic regime, a new constitution, a new consensual constitution. In a country whose population was alarmingly very divided between Islamist and non-Islamist, it took indeed a couple of years of fierce debate and intensive discussions among Tunisians to come up with this new constitution which is regarded as exemplary in matters of human rights, including women's rights, and freedom of conscience, among others. Uh, 
Secretary of State uh, John Kerry, who briefly stopped by Tunisia yesterday, praised the Tunisians uh, for their, uh, and Tunisia, he called it an example of dialogue and compromise. I think that's what indeed the Tunisians are mostly about. If, um, it, so it, the compromise on the part of the Islamists, I'm sure you've heard that the Islamists were, had an agenda and they wanted to implement it a little bit, sometimes forcefully, but they ended up uh, compromising. They had the majority of seats in the Constituent Assembly, which was in charge of fighting the Constitution, but under tremendous pressure from civil society organizations, including, and we have to mention them, women's groups. They were very mobilized uh, f in favor of their rights, uh, and they, as I said, put pressure on the, the Islamist party in Nada to make substantial concessions, particularly when they accepted that Sharia should not be the basis of legislation, uh, the respect of women's rights, and freedom of conscience, among others. In doing so, the Islamist party called Nada moved to the, to the center. But by doing that, they left their right open to other groups, more radicals, and they are indeed manifesting themselves, sometimes resorting to terrorism. And that's, that's an issue in Tunisia. I think we will be talking about that. If we are going to talk about the economy, we should, they, there won't be any recovery, not to mention growth, without security. And I, I understand that Tunisian government, which is uh, comprised of technocrats now, not politicians, they're not politically appointed, they're technocrats, uh, have this issue in, of security, at, at, uh, it is of prime concern to this new government uh, that is supposed to move Tunisia to the next step, which is going to be the, the elections uh, of a parliament and presidential elections in, within a year or so. But in the meantime, they have to restart the economy and they have to trigger economic growth, if I may say, again. Uh, on the economic front, very briefly, um, just want to point out just that GDP shrunk by 1.9% during the first year after the revolution, which again occurred in 2011, a, a first in Tunisia's uh, recent history, I mean, before climbing again to 3.6% in 2012 and stabilizing at around 3% this year. However, these rates remain well below the peaks reached during the last decade the growth was over 6% in 2007, and even then, as we know now, uh, this growth was not enough, was not shared, and that contributed to the 2011 uprisings. We should keep that in mind. So where is Tunisia heading now on the economic front, particularly given the slow recovery uh, in the euro area upon which Tunisia depend, depends? The, it, uh, the euro area is the main partner of Tunisia. Will Tunisia's economy uh, be able to achieve a, a decent growth rate to tackle the pressing issue of job creation, particularly among the youth? What kind of economic development strategy should Tunisia adopt for a more inclusive and a better shared growth? What role the U.S. can play in this process vis-a-vis -a, -vis a country Tunisia considered a very a close friend for decades of the United States? And a, and, a, and a faithful partner, if I may say. These are some of the issues that our distinguished guests will certainly address in their presentations. And I will immediately leave the floor 
to our first speaker, our keynote speaker, uh, Ambassador, uh, let me introduce you very briefly, Ambassador uh, of Tunisia, of the Republic of Tunisia to the United States, uh, Mohammed Zin Schleifer. Uh, he's, he's been appointed to the United States recently. He's Ambassador of Tunisia to the US since December 1st, 2013. Before that, from September 2011 to November 2013, he served as ambassador, uh, the formal, the formal um, title is uh, ambassador extraordinary and plenipotentiary of Tunisia to the Kingdom of Spain. Uh, before that, from October 2010 to August 2011, he was appointed ambassador of Tunisia to Australia, where he opened the first uh, Tunisian um, embassy in that country. Uh, before that and up to 1983, when he joined the Foreign Service, Mr. Shalaifa occupied, has occupied several key positions within the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Tunisia. He, uh, his uh, educational background is um, the f as follows. Mr. His Excellency, um, the Ambassador, has a degree in political science from the Institut d'études politiques in Aix-en-Provence, France, a master's degree in international law from the same university, and a PhD in economic science, economics, uh, in, from Aix-en-Provence as, as well. Uh, he is uh, fluent in Arabic, French, Spanish, and English. He's married and has two children. Welcome, Mr. Ambassador. The floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much, distinguished guests. Thank you for coming. I'm really pleased uh, this evening to take part to this uh, timely Tunisian event. Uh, and I would like to compliment uh, the Maghreb Center, as well as Peterson Institute and uh, the National Council on US-Arab Relations for their active support and interest to my country, Tunisia. I'm not going to present an academic approach about uh, Tunisian transition. I will rather try to, uh, to assess the real situation of Tunisia today and in the foreseeable uh, future. Uh, Tunisia, Tunisia's process toward democracy uh, like all political transition, has witnessed crises and challenges. However, unlike other countries, Tunisia has opted for inclusive dialogue and consensus. Uh, uh, this uh, uh, this uh, process uh, has been uh, successful uh, thanks to a vibra vibrant uh, Tunisian civil society and thanks to the tradition, the Tunisian tradition of uh, moderation and reformism. Um, now Tunisia, I think, has achieved a historic breakthrough in its political process which is unusual in our region, with a new liberal, secular, 
and prog progressive constitution with a new technocratic and non-partisan government and with a new independent electoral board. These are solid foundations for democracy and concrete ingredients for success. But these achievements remain unfinished and fragile. After celebrating these achievements and once the delights of success are forgotten, the Tunisians have to address serious challenges which can be classified into three categories, political, security, and socioeconomic. On the political level, and in the short term, the Tunisian people, as well as the civil society and the political society, should keep and protect the spirit of dialogue and compromise adopted during the transitional phase. Always in the short term, the government should establish a favorable environment for general fair and free elections. In the long term, and that's the major challenging task, all Tunisians should protect their political achievements through rooting of a genuine democratic culture and ensuring the full implementation of the new progressive constitution. Regarding the security challenges, they are mainly related to our struggle against terrorism and proliferation of weapons from neighboring countries. It requires increasing the international military and security support. It requires reform programs in order to adjust our security policy and capacities to new terrorist threats and make Tunisia a regional deterrent against terrorism. We come now to main important and crucial issues, which is economic and social challenges. We should recognize that there is a dialectic relation between economic, political, and security issues. We should also take into account the fact that regional development disparities and unemployment sparked the popular uprising in the country, and thus, no fair election, no security or political stability or deep reforms can be conducted in a hostile atmosphere and with a poor and in a poor economic conditions. During three years of difficult transition, the Tunisian economy has suffered a slowing down. The lack of visibility, the lack of political, the political instability and the social unrest have generated a decline of GDP growth, a rise in, in unemployment rates, a drop of public and private investments and a deterioration of fiscal balances. 
Despite these challenges, there are many objective considerations and there are a Tunisian economic potential that inspire confidence about Tunisia's future. Tunisia's pace of development prior to the revolution was comparatively robust. It emerged from being a small country with no significant resources to a regionally top-performing African countries in terms of economic and human development. Tunisia is among the high human development countries just after Turkey. Three years after the revolution, the economy is recovering. The economy is uh, recovering to pre-revolution levels thanks to a diversified economy moving up to high added value sectors like ITCs, automotive, and aeronautic industries. Tunisia also is well positioned to serve as a regional model and a hub offering access to Europe, Africa, and the Arab world. In fact, Tunisia has a free trade agreement with the European Union, a free trade agreement with Libya, Algeria, Turkey, and is a member of many other regional trade agreements. Tunisia has a good expanding infrastructure and a modern infrastructure, port facilities, and good air-sea links with Europe and neighboring countries. Investors will have access to a highly skilled workforce and talent pool. A new investment code will be adopted in the upcoming weeks. The new feature of the code will offer better guarantees for investors, particularly in arbitration and access to markets, automatic access to incentives, granting bonuses to investment based on performance, optimal simplification of procedure, and support for investors. <coughs> Tunisia continues to be an attractive host country for foreign investment. We count today more than 3,000 foreign companies in Tunisia. Joint venture play a major role and nearly half of foreign companies have mixed capitals. More than 75% of foreign firms export their entire production. The distribution of, uh, of foreign direct investment in Tunisia by country of origin reveals the predominance of France, Italy, and Germany. There are also many US companies present in Tunisia, about 80, I think, but still not enough considering Tunisia and the United States potential. <clears throat> A new momentum is at work in Tunisia. This momentum, this momentum will, will determine Tunisia's ability to shift to a stronger, sustainable, and job-rich and job uh, growth path. The success of this momentum is crucial to the consolidation of democracy in Tunisia. 
it has wide ramification for the region too. The United States, a global power with, with interest in our region, has a stake in Tunisia's success. In fact, US, US support to Tunisia will serve as a cost-effective public diplomacy argument to prove that the US is sincere in its pursuit of freedom and democracy, regardless of short-term calculation and interests. A safe and secure Tunisia can provide a regional pillar of strength in the regional fight against terrorism. Tunisia proves that viable democracies can be established in the Arab world. Tunisia also could be a gateway for US companies to Europe, Middle East, and especially Sub-Saharan Africa for many sectors like pharmaceutical, ICT, logistics, manufacturing, automotive, aerospace, education, etc. Now, what we, Tunisian and Americans, can do together to make it happen and to help it last. It's now the time, it's now, I think, the time to work together and to win together by fostering a strategic partnership that, that is value-driven, program-based, and result-oriented. <clears throat> I would argue in particular that the most effective way to achieve a mutually beneficial new momentum is to explore the possibility of a free trade agreement could offer to our respective business communities with a, with a negligible cost on the US economy, a free trade area will send a potent, uh, a potent message to business circles all over the world. It can restore confidence and generate fresh opportunities for our respective countries. Pending the conclusion of a free trade agreement, a provisional trade arrangement offering privileged access to Tunisian products would be of great support, including, for example, Tunisia in the African Growth and Opportunity Act, AGOA, could offer tangible incentives for Tunisia to continue its macroeconomic reforms, open its economy, build a, a vibrant free markets, and prepare for free trade with the U.S., on another level, it is important to explore new ideas. Uh, new ideas to allow Tunisia to benefit from, for example, the MCC compact programs, including a, re a readjustment of eligibility crit criteria. Concretely, what is happening now today between Tunisia and United States. Concretely today, Tunisia and the United States are discussing the ways and means to strengthen and reshape their modest bilateral relations, which has been neglected during decades. 
the discussion aimed to establish a new strategic partnership focused on four pillars. Number one, setting a, strateg a strategic dialogue, which has been announced by Secretary of State John Kerry during its recent visit to Tunis. Number two, building a new security cooperation and partnership based on counterterrorism and common regional interests. Number three, exploring a new frameworks on trade and investments like FTA or AGOA. Number four, shaping a long-term technical and financial program, avoid, avoiding the multiplication of small programs and tools and putting more synergy between US, and US agencies and departments and focusing on key sector for Tunisia, which are entrepreneurship, job creation, and education. This is, distinguished guests, uh, the Tunisian new vision for more visible, more efficient, and an ambitious strategic agenda between Tunisia and the United States. Thank you for your attention. Thank you, Mr. Ambassador. We now move to the next, uh, ask the next speaker to come forward. It's uh, he, uh, the Acting Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Economic Affairs, Andrew Haviland. He, um, Mr. Haviland uh, leads the economic, also leads the economic team in the State Department Office of Monetary Affairs, responsible for advancing U.S. economic interests globally through international financial initiatives and partnerships. His team works with the U.S. Treasury Department and other agencies and international institutions, including the, uh, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, to promote economic growth, financial stability, and sound public financial management. In this position, he also has the U.S. delegation to the Paris Club coordinating debt relief policy among sovereign creditors and negotiating debt work out to recover U.S. assets and promote economic reform. Prior to this assignment, uh, Andrew Haviland served two years in Afghanistan, where he worked to stabilize communities and build governance and development capacity in eastern and southern provinces. He spent six months uh, directing the work of a provincial reconstruction team and then went on to head all U.S. government civilian operations in Kandahar, the provinces of uh, Regional Command South. He has joined the Foreign uh, Service in 1991, and he has spent the majority of his diplomatic career furthering U.S. economic interests in the developing world through cooperation with that developing world, specializing in international trade and finance. In Washington, he previously served as the Deputy Director of, of Offices in the Bureau of uh, Economic and Business Affairs and International Organization Affairs, 
pursuing economic, uh, U.S. economic interests bilaterally and multilaterally, including issues like food security and climate change, in cooperation with partners within the UN system and other international institutions. Overseas, Mr. Haviland has worked in India, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Senegal, Mauritania, Haiti, and the United Kingdom. Uh, in terms of his education backgrounds, uh, he holds a master's degree in economic development for Columbia University's School of International Public Affairs, and another in international finance from Harvard Kennedy School of Government. He began his international career as a Peace Corps volunteer, spending two years promoting rural community development in a West African village in the 1970s. So without any further introduction, Andrew, the floor is yours. Please come forward. Thank you. Najib, thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today. Um, as you can tell from my uh, bio there, I'm not an expert on Tunisia, uh, but you can well imagine the importance of <clears throat> the countries in the Arab Spring for the State Department. And so my office and my staff have been focusing a lot of our efforts on trying to help uh, to move the transition uh, forward. Um, I, I want to make a few remarks today, but I, I want to start by thanking the, the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations and the Maghreb Center and the Peterson Institute for putting this event together. Um, I'd also like to thank and welcome His Excellency Ambassador Shalefa, who has the honor of representing Tunisia at this most important time of democratic transition. And I am pleased to, to, uh, to join this event with him today as we discuss our strong relationship and our ongoing partnership uh, that the ambassador so ably already had, uh, described. Um, in many ways, Tunisia um, remains uh, the, the face of the Arab awakening and the ongoing transition throughout the region. Its path has been filled with many difficult challenges and there are certainly more ahead. Uh, like many of you here, however, uh, we have been encouraged by recent developments in Tunisia. Um, many of them have been listed already, but let me highlight the ones that certainly jumped to our attention. In January, of course, the National Constitutional Assembly voted by an overwhelming majority to adopt Tunisia's new constitution and swore an, in, an independent government under the leadership of Prime Minister Modi Joma. On the economic front, Tunisia's progress on its reform agenda enabled the International Monetary Fund to complete the first and second reviews of Tunisia's $1.75 billion standby arrangement. This unlocked an additional over $500 million in IMF financing in January. These are very positive steps, and we in the U.S. government are optimistic that Tunisia will move forward with a successful transition to democracy and political and economic stability. The United States will continue to be a friend and a partner to Tunisia to support its democratic transition, to bolster security, and to promote a more peaceful and prosperous future. I'm here today to speak about the, uh, some key elements of the economic component of this engagement. 
First, I think it's helpful to step back and put some of Tunisia's economic challenges in a regional context. The Arab awakening was the result of more than just political grievances. One of the underlying causes of the revolution that swept across the region in 2011 was a lack of economic opportunities and jobs, particularly from a burgeoning youth population. An uneven economic playing field left those without connections with limited prospects for a brighter future. This was as true in Tunisia as it was in other parts of the region. Tunisia's new government is focused on addressing these challenges and improving economic growth. To do so, it will have to lay the foundation for a thriving economy with a strong regulatory and policy framework capable of creating jobs and widespread economic opportunities. An important part of meeting this challenge is increasing domestic investment and attracting more investment from overseas. Increased trade and investment will be vital to boosting economic growth, diversifying Tunisia to Tunisia's economy, and creating new jobs. We are confident that U.S. trade and investment can play a large role in this process. U.S. companies active in Tunisia not only contribute to U.S. prosperity, but also serve to share America's economic strength. This presents a win-win scenario for the United States and Tunisia. As Tunisia state takes steps to improve its investment climate and become a more attractive destination for foreign direct investment, it will also create a more level economic playing field that leads to more job opportunities for Tunisians themselves. This will help address one of the biggest economic challenges facing Tunisia in the coming years, namely their growing young popula population in search of quality jobs. The United States supports the Tunisian government's ongoing commitment to its homegrown economic reform program which is in turn supported by the IMF standby arrangement. Through this reform program, Tunisia is taking steps to address vulnerabilities in its banking sector, reorient its budget toward more pro-growth pro consumption, and implement a comprehensive structural adjustment that will promote private sector development. Following through on this reform agenda will help boost private sector-led economic growth and reduce unemployment. While some of these forms are difficult, the Tunisian government has recognized their importance, and the United States stands ready to help along the way. The trend in the region, and globally, is toward greater transparency and accountability in government. Governments will have to demonstrate that they are using public funds responsibly, effectively, and to the greatest benefit of their citizens. One of the challenges is making sure that the budget has the right mix of current consumption and capital investment. In Tunisia, government spending on wages and subsidies, both current consumption, is now close to 86% of government revenues. 
This means that there is less space for the sort of capital investment in future productive capacity that can lay the foundation for long-term, broad-based economic growth. Unfortunately, capital expenditures likely reached record lows last year, so 2013. In addition, increasing capital investment, in, in addition to increasing capital investments, there is also a need to increase targeted social spending. Part of this transition will include a gradual shift away from regressive, inefficient, and ultimately wasteful energy, uh, a wasteful energy subsidy model toward more targeted social safety net that protects the most vulnerable Tunisians. We recognize that these form reforms are difficult and they are certainly politically sensitive. But a major challenge in this task simply lies in addressing misconceptions. For example, there is often a misconception that subsidy reform is a form of austerity. This is unfortunate and misleading because sound policy reform that reduces general energy subsidies will result in improved growth that will benefit all Tunisians. Put another way, the pie actually gets bigger. Uh, particularly in the Middle East and North Africa region, subsidy reforms is about targeting government resources more effectively. It is not about cutting spending. Rather, it is about changing the composition of spending, making sure that each limited government dollar spent has the biggest impact for the people who need it the most. Funds saved from the gradual, the gradual reduction in energy subsidies can be used to increase targeted cash transfers to the poor. They can also finance infrastructure investments to spur broad-based growth and long-term economic growth. We believe that governments in the region can do more to explain to their citizens these trade-offs of reforms. In order to successfully implement a reform agenda, governments will need to engage their citizens on the economic transition in the same way that they engage them on the political transition. In large part, economic reform is about helping governments fulfill the promise of the political transition. As Tunisia continues on its economic reform program, the United States will continue to be a strong partner. We have large signature programs that support Tunisia's economic recovery and development. Since the January 2011 revolution, we have committed nearly $400 million to support Tunisia's transition, focusing heavily on support for peace and stability in the country, civil society and democratic practices, and technical and financial assistance to Tunisia's economy and its private sector. The United States has thought to encourage Tunisia's economic recovery and lay the groundwork for market-oriented institutional reforms. In 2011, uh, 2012, the United States gave Tunisia a $100 million crash transfer as direct budget support. In addition, the United States guaranteed repayment and principal and of principal and interest on a $485 million Tunisian sovereign bond issuance, this also in 2012, 
as our support for stabilization and reform. This action greatly reduced the government's borrowing costs. The United States provided $400 million in 2013 to the Tunisian American Enterprise Fund to help launch small and medium-sized enterprises and spur additional private sector investment in Tunisia. The Enterprise Fund will infuse capital into Tunisia's financial system and advance in Tunisia's development across the country. U.S. economic initiatives focus on job creation and structural economic reforms. In addition to the Tunisian American Enterprise Fund, our joint work with the U.S. Overseas Private Investment Corporation, or OPIC, as many of you know it, helps to finance small loans to small and medium-sized enterprises. Our information and communication technology competitiveness project develops job skills, increasing hiring by improving business efficiency, and advises on critical policy reforms to enable the private sector to grow. Our Thomas Jefferson scholarships promote workforce development and benefit hundreds of young Tunisians. In a more recent initiative, the United States launched the Center for Entrepreneurial and Executive Development in December 2013. This center's director has already recruited 15 business mentors and is working to target 20 entrepreneurs in March alone. The United States has allocated half a million dollars for grants to small and medium-sized businesses in, 20, in 2014, so this year, through this center. So to wrap up, the United States will continue to stand by Tunisia as it works through its political and economic transition. We believe that Tunisia's future is bright and the region is undoubtedly stronger with a prosperous and democratic Tunisia. In fact, Tunisia's success can serve as a model and inspiration for others in the region. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Sullivan. Uh, <clears throat> it's now time for our third speaker, Caroline Front, who is a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute for International Economics. She's been here since May, uh, May 2013. Before that, she was chief economist for the Middle East and North Africa, the World Bank, between 2011 and 13. Prior to that, she was lead economist and senior economist in the research department of the World Bank. She was also senior economist at the uh, International Monetary Fund and economist of the Federal Reserve Board. Dr. Fran works primarily on economic growth and international trade and also writes on economic issues in the Middle East and North Africa. She has published numerous articles in economic uh, journals, including uh, the American Economic Review, the Quarterly Journal of Economics, the Review of Economics and Statistics, the Journal of International Economics, the Journal of International Money and Finance, and the Journal of Development Economics. And she has contributed to many edited volumes as well. Her work also has been cited in uh, leading magazines and newspapers, including uh, Business Week, The Economist, The Financial Times, The Wall Street Journal, uh, Washington Post. She is on the editorial board of the World Bank Economic Review and the Board of uh, Trustees 
of the Economic Research Forum. Uh, she's a member also of the Center for Economic Policy Research. She received her PhD in economics from Columbia University in 1997, and I ask her to come forward to the to the stage here to share with us her analysis and suggestions about Tunisia. Analysis about the economic situation in Tunisia and her suggestions on the way forward. Thank you. Um, thank you for the introduction and uh, also for organizing this, this event, uh, which I think is very timely given the changes that are happening in Tunisia and how Tunisia is now, I mean, since the beginning, since, since 2011, it's been sort of the front runner in uh, the Arab Spring and it clearly remains so and I think uh, the, all the support possible is, is needed for Tunisia. I was also very happy to hear the remarks of uh, His ex ex Excellency about a free trade agreement with uh, Tunisia and the US. I think that uh, many of us here at the Peterson Institute believe that trade is more effective than aid um, for both economic development as well as uh, democratic change. So if you look, for example, to the countries of Eastern Europe, um, the anchor of the European Union was so important in both the types of reforms they needed to move towards democracy, as well as the types of reforms they needed to move towards market economies. Um, and it's, it's not limited there. Mexico really completed its transition to democracy after the NAFTA. Um, just the lure of the European Union has helped Turkey on its path uh, to democracy, um, give or take some recent fumbles. But um, overall, trade has been extraordinarily effective for both democratic transition as well as economic. Um, I actually prepared a, a short presentation, which, which I'll put on, um, and I think many of the issues have been said by the previous speakers, so I, I can go rather, rather quickly, but I think I'd like to start just by saying that, you know, before the revolution, compared to many of the other countries in the Middle East and North Africa region, Tunisia was actually doing pretty well. We had stable growth of about 5%. Um, um, as was mentioned, the human development indicators are extraordinary. Um, IMF staff encouraged and applauded some of the reforms that, that had happened in, in Tunisia. However, what became clear since the revolution was the lack of inclusiveness in the type of growth that Tunisia saw. So, I mean, one, one standout figure was that unemployment was at 13%, youth unemployment was double that, women's unemployment was, was double that as well. Um, poverty in the center west of the country is three times the poverty rate of, of Tunis. Um, and another concern which hasn't been brought up today uh, very much was corruption. So Tunisia had become a family-run economy. And I'm going to show you some new information that has, has come out since the revolution. I think one thing that Tunisia has done in, a different, in addition to the progress we've seen towards 
democracy and uh, the recent uh, IMF uh, disbursement is Tunisia at the very early stages uh, after the revolution instituted a Freedom of Information Act. And this is so important because if the population doesn't have access to information, they don't know what's happening. They don't know who's, where funds are going. They don't know uh, uh, who's poor and who's rich, where things are. Anyway, they've really stuck to this and made data much more accessible than it was in the past and than many other countries even outside of the Arab world. So one thing I've looked at with colleagues of, former colleagues of mine from the World Bank is the extent to which firms that were owned by Ben Ali and his cronies controlled the economy. So I'm going to talk a bit about that um, as well. So just to reiterate, these are some of the challenges that have been mentioned. We have structural issues which, which led to this high unemployment in the past, kind of a bloated civil service, energy subsidies, which pull resources into energy producing industries instead of where you'd want them, which is the, the labor intensive sectors, um, and then this regulations and rent seeking. So what this led to was insufficient growth. So we say, but growth was 5%. Well, but unemployment was 13%. In China, we saw the reverse, growth of 10%, unemployment below 5%. That's what this country should be aiming for, not growth of 5% and unemployment of 13%. So there was insufficient growth. There was also really low labor force participation, high unemployment, so, um, and then, now, on top of that, the unfortunate part of a transition, as good as it will be for the future and the potential that's there, is there's uncertainty in the short run. There's policy unpredictability. And we know that capital is a coward. So investors are staying out and tourists are staying away. And, and this is going to hurt in the short run. Um, so just to look at growth, this has already been mentioned, but you can see the, you know, I think looking at the picture really shows this is what Tunisia suffered. So you went from the 5% average growth to something unprecedented, the, the negative growth that, that the previous speakers have already mentioned. Um, just to show quickly the low labor force participation, especially among women, only somewhat 25% of women are even in the labor force, and then they have the highest unemployment rates. So of working age women, you have less than 20% actually working. What a wasted potential. I mean, if all those women got out there and worked, think how much bigger production would be, growth would be, et cetera. Um, so, so that's one sort of the wasted potential. The other that has been mentioned is the high youth unemployment um, and also higher unemployment of the educated population. Um, so in the past, subsidies and government jobs were part of the general exchange in the Middle East and North Africa region for accepting uh, autocratic style government. So as long as you have these handouts, it's easier to, to accept some political constraints. Um, 
Tunisia, before the revolution, did have a problem with subsidies. I think the thing that's, that's of a greater concern is it's actually become much bigger, so that the subsidies now are, are taking up uh, nearly 7% of GDP. Um, and I think in, for next year, it's estimated above that, uh, or for this year now, it's 2014. Um, in addition, uh, we have about 20% of the labor force working in the, in the government sector, and that has actually increased um, in, in recent years. Um, so, but what I really wanted to talk about, sort of to differentiate um, and to talk about something that I think can be tackled uh, to some extent in, in the shorter run, is corruption and state capture. So, one thing is if you just look at Transparency International's Corruption Perception Index, actually, to me, Tunisia doesn't look so bad. Tunisia, in 2010, before the revolution, was ranked 59th out of 178, and I looked at previous years, and the number was lower, so it looked like corruption was worsening, but there were actually fewer countries in the index, so it was always at about a third. Um, which really isn't bad. I mean, I could, being next to countries like Latvia, Slovakia, and actually more recently, it's, it's, I think, because of the changes the country's undergoing, it's, the rank has fallen. Um, but the problem was much more to do with rent-seeking, which is actually a legal type of corruption in the sense that if you're in power, you can put regulations in place that serve your interests. Or you can benefit from the regulations that are in, in place. Um, and looking through sort of the literature and anybody who's visited Tunisia, that was the one thing you kind of were, were hearing a lot of, that the excesses had just gotten too extreme before the revolution. That uh, Ben Ali's family was had really sort of inspired this kind of, of outrage. Um, and I listed some examples here um, where, in the one case, a uh, top private school was closed legally because of it didn't meet some regulations, but everybody knew it was because it was competing with a school that was owned by Ben Ali's wife's family. Um, McDonald's spent many years trying to open a franchise, but because they had the wrong partner, i.e. not a member of the family, they weren't able to invest. So these were the kind of things, and this is the new data that I wanted to put up, which is really striking. So this is from the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of Justice in Tunisia, and it's the Ben Ali family tree, and it shows all the firms that they, that they had owned. Um, and, you know, after the revolution, I think it was, uh, probably some of the Tunis Tunisians here know better, but 550 properties were, um, were confiscated, uh, 367 bank accounts, 400 enterprises, um, numerous yachts and boats, all together totaling 25% of the country's GDP. Um, so what, what this new access to data has given us is what we have is the industrial census 
And in the industrial census, they've matched the firms that are associated with the Ben Ali clan. And what that means to us is we can look at that and we can see how this affected industry in Tunisia. These guys were only 3% of output, but they took 21% of profits. How did they do that? Well, we find they were more profitable in industries that required government authorization or had FDI restrictions. We also find that when they took over firms, those industries suddenly sprouted authorization requirements and FDI restrictions. So there was this kind of um, um, cap state capture going on that the rules were both abused by the regime, but they were also creating rules as needed. Um, so there's a real need in the country now to deliver a different type of business climate, one that allows the most productive firms to grow, to move away from the privilege of the past to competition. Um, but in the short run, transition is tough. There's political uncertainty, policy uncertainty, security concerns, um, and investors and tourists are waiting it out. So this is just from some other work uh, uh, I did um, that looks at all the countries that have transitioned to, de to democracy or tried to transition but failed in the path in the past and what ha so there were like 90 some odd countries have have made an attempt and what happened to growth and whether or not they succeed or fail there's this really striking dip in growth but I think there's also a positive side here. On average, growth tends to come up pretty fast after. So I think if you look where Tunisia is now, they're, they're on the up path. And so hopefully all goes well and there's a lot of positive news now. We could see growth rates of 5% and maybe eventually even higher than that again soon. Right now though, things are difficult, the current account deficit, so that's the gap between how much more a country imports than it exports, has expanded, or plus some transfers, but mainly that, expanded to 8% of GDP in 2012 and 13. The fiscal deficit exceeded 6%, and reserves are covering just over three months of imports. So this is unsustainable for an extended period. And that's where I think the IMF comes in and the positive news where we've heard of late is, is really fortunate. The currency is weakened, but there's still probably some room for movement and reform is still urgent. So what I've done here is just the first two things, I think it's really important to highlight the progress. So the two things are perhaps the most difficult and they've, they've been done. So they've done the constitution, which is extraordinary. I mean, it's the the way you know the the um, the, the 
almost uniform support for it in the assembly was really extraordinary. Um, the IMF disbursement is a major win for economic stability, but there's still a need to do more things. And I think one is very easy, but hasn't, can't fully say it's been done when we see the rising subsidies and government uh, employees refrain from wrong direction reform, improve security, of course, to bring back tourists and investors, temporary job works programs, trade agreements uh, and investment incentives to give that kind of confidence that can really anchor reform, bring investors and get things going again. Um, on the structural side, to reduce the kind of imbalances we had in the past and to create a more vibrant private sector, reduce energy subsidies, address the civil service employment uh, problem, and uh, reform the investment uh, climate, and to begin revise the investment code that has regulations in it from the past that aren't serving the interest of Tunisians. So, so why don't I stop there and thank you. Thank you very much, Caroline, for this really interesting and enlightening uh, presentation. We are now going to move towards the, uh, sorry, what? The Q&A session. And, but before that, we have a gentleman here who um, wanted to make a, few, a representative of the Tunisian-American community who also happens to be involved in uh, promoting entrepreneurship, economic. And he has a few comments to make, and maybe, uh, please, uh, Mohamed Malouch. Please come forward, and uh, you have uh, five minutes. Thank you. Sure. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be brief. Uh, thank you, Najib, for, for the, op the sort of the last minute opportunity to say a few words about uh, what the diaspora has been doing um, and you know, how we've been uh, essentially trying to increase uh, the economic ties, the cooperation, the exchanges between Tunisia and the United States. Um, so, and I will share with you because I think a lot of the, the items I wanted to, to share with you uh, have already been covered by this outstanding panel, so I'll share with you a couple of stories. Um, the, you know, one of our main uh, sort of motto uh, with the Tunisian American uh, young professionals was to really mobilize our diaspora to promote the value proposition of Tunisia and in particular the investment value proposition of Tunisia. And so the way we've done it was we uh, went with uh, what we thought were very powerful message, and there are indeed powerful messages. You know, Tunisia is an educated population. Uh, it has a, a relatively good infrastructure. Uh, it has some fiscal, you know, advantages that are, are very important. Uh, it has a, a you know uh, expertise and sort of a, a ratio of uh, you know cost to expertise that's pretty favorable. But as we were developing these messages and passing on these messages, we felt that the feedback you know from our audiences, from the investors, was you know there's something missing here. You know it's not enough. And so we went on and uh, and essentially built a narrative uh, that was a little bit more powerful. 
and, and created sort of, you know, and the ambassador talked about that, created this, you know, uh, notion of Tunisia as, you know, given that it's a small market, Tunisia as being a hub, you know, a sort of a, a platform for expansion, regional expansions for U.S. multinationals, but also U.S. SMEs to Southern Europe, to the Middle East, to Africa. And we've gotten a little bit more traction. We, we were sort of more successful in convincing uh, people to sort of uh, pay attention. At the end of the day, what we found out was that the missing components, the thing that people were asking over and over again, is exactly what Caroline was describing, which is the transparency, the rule of law, the corruption issue, the visibility, the security. And so we developed the following narrative, and we'd love to hear your feedback about it. Uh, and if you have additional ideas, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll take them. Uh, but we thought about it hard, um, and you know, this notion of hub was good, but you know, when you go to the Moroccans, they actually say the same thing, you know, and they add stability on top of it. If you go to the Egyptian, they would also say the same thing, and they add a, an 80 million uh, you know, population on top of it. If you go to the Turks, they would say exactly the same thing, and they will say that they're the 60th, uh, 16th economy in the world. So what is unique about Tunisia? What is unique about Tunisia in our mind is, uh, first of all, the role that women have been playing uh, in this country, in the advancement of this country. You know, the women of Tunisia, the vibrant women of Tunisia have been uh, an amazing uh, assets and obviously uh, an important assets to the economic growth of Tunisia, the political growth, the civil society, and it's pretty unique. Their status is pretty unique throughout the Arab world, and that is a true differentiator that people relate to. Why? Because it's a sign of openness, it's a sign of tolerance, it's a sign of risk mitigation, and, and that's what people want to hear. The, the second thing that worked fairly well um, was really talking about the gains of the revolution. There's been a lot of challenges out of the revolution, but a lot of gains as well. And the gains of the revolutions and again, coming back to these topics of transparency, corruption, etc., one of the biggest gains of this revolution was the rise of civil society in Tunisia. You have watchdog organizations today in Tunisia that monitor every transaction out there. You have uh, people who, in the National Constituent Assembly, take pictures of who's voting because, you know, uh, you know, and then publish them on the Internet. There's you know, a number of organizations that are essentially making sure that uh, there's, you know, the, the, the climate is transparent, and, and that is important because transparency and rule of law is a key factor. The, the, the other factor is, uh, you know, and I, you were talking about OpenGov and, you know, all these measures uh, around uh, OpenGov, but, you know, Tunisia has been branded, and this has accentuated in the past few weeks, has been branded as a nation of dialogue, as a nation of compromise, as a nation of trade-offs. And that is important. That is important for good governance. It's important for investors to feel like there's a mechanism for fair dispute resolution that they can rely on. So th those were some of the topics, some of the themes that sort of worked, uh, you know, as far as we're concerned. Uh, and, and those are some of the ingredients that eventually could uh, you know, ease, ease the, the, the sort of the, the asks of the, uh, the, for, of, uh, the foreign investors and essentially uh, ensure that in Tunisia 
the notion of stability may not exist today, but the, the ingredients for predictable stability exist for tomorrow. And that is why if you are you know, uh, an investor, you would want to be a first mover to take advantage of a number of things. I'll be very quick, one quick st story, because it's a story on entrepreneurship, and you know, I care very much about this. All right. <laughs> All right, so, you know, uh, Mr. Assistant Secretary, you said that there's a, a number of efforts uh, regarding entrepreneurship in Tunisia. We have vibrant entrepreneurs in Tunisia. You know, we have absolutely amazing ideas, but these folks need money, they need mentorship, they need training, they need, uh, you know, uh, essentially a number of things. And so, you know, one of the, 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 the things that I think they relate to is that in their minds, in the minds of Tunisian entrepreneurs, Entrep entrepreneurship support can only come from the United States because especially in value-added sector, they relate to Silicon Valley, they relate to the research triangle in North Carolina, they relate to, to the Boston biotech you know, uh, uh, centers. And, and in their minds, you know, entrepreneurship is not associated to France or nothing against you know, France, or, you know, but it's not associated to, to the Middle East or, Fran or France or Europe, it's associated to the United States. And so, you know, my ask and, and, you know, is, is really to strengthen the efforts in terms of supporting entrepreneurship. And you mentioned a number of efforts, but I think they need to be uh, definitely supersized. Thank you. Okay, <laughs> very good. That, that's, that's being said. Uh, we are going to open the floor to questions. You have uh, two mics here. And I'll ask you to uh, give your name and your affiliation. Can I start first? Uh, uh, Dr. Anthony has uh, well, just, a few things uh, to say. Taking the liberty of being one of the speakers as such. Uh, Please. To ask the ambassador if he would care to comment and uh, anyone else as well. When we, uh, we've taken 25 delegations to Tunisia and we used to take all of them to FIPA, the uh, Foreign Investment uh, Promotion Agency. It was led by a very charismatic woman um, around 40. And uh, in this audience, if we went out and saw a vacant lot somewhere on Massachusetts Avenue, we'd say, wow, let's buy that, and let's build a condominium on it. Uh, we could not get the licenses for the water, the sewer, the sanitation, the environment, the gas, the electricity, you name it. Uh, it'll take us a year minimum. Uh, but they had it arranged where there was a desk for sanitation, for sewage, for electricity, for environment, for uh, legal issues, for arbitration issues, for uh, f uh, financial issues, uh, about a dozen. And they were all in a semicircle in this one gigantic room. And there would be a person at the head of each one of them. Uh, this would be the electricity director for the permits we're talking about. Next one would be the deputy, and next one would be the deputy assistant there. And you could spend pretty much one day there and get all of the permits, or at least the green light, not a red light, and find out where you had to work hardest on them. Uh, this was extraordinary. Uh, all the delegations we've taken throughout uh, the Arab world, and we've taken 335 delegations, it was the only country that had done that. This was extraordinary. However, if you could bring us up to date, Mr. Ambassador, on that, everybody said, you know, you don't have a flight to the United States, you know? Um, El Maroc does, 
and look what they have in the way of tourists and visitors. And of course, Air Maroc uh, went into debt for several years before they would began to break even. Uh, Tunisia's never done it. And as a result, the number of American tourists are correspondingly far fewer than they are to Morocco. Well, I should have comment uh, about that, if you would. And to let you know, I thought maybe one of the speakers would say it, that among America's Peace Corps volunteers worldwide, I don't think any are more upbeat, positive, enthusiastic cheerleaders for the country they served in than those from Tunisia. They're extraordinary. If you've met one of them, you know what I'm talking about there. So the, the Peace Corps uh, really was one of the fantastic feathers in both Tunisia's and America's cap. And uh, we enjoyed being the headquarters for the Hannibal Club and the Tunisian American Friendship Society. And we're open, the atmosphere is receptive, and the moment is propitious to do these kinds of things the moment uh, you and your fellow leaders in Tunisia are ready, Mr. Ambassador. Could you comment on these two things, FIPA and the lack of a direct flight to the United States? Thank, thank you, Dr. Sands. Maybe we'll take another two questions yeah. to, to the ambassador and then have him answer and then we can move to. Bill, is your question to the ambassador? Please, yeah, let's wait until. <laughs> questions to the ambassador, please. Okay. You can use this one if you want. Actually, this one. One more. The ambassador did a great job of outlining what we should be doing that we're not currently doing, or we should be doing more of. You know, and that the other part of the strategic planning process is to define, you know, what is it that we are currently doing that we shouldn't be doing. You know, and unfortunately, one of the real the byproducts of hegemony is is. Uh, is uh, arrogance and hubris, and uh, you know we, you know, we're thrust into that role of our own choosing because they're all the developed economies of, of Europe and Asia were destroyed after World War II, and we have, uh, I think, uh, overstepped. I mean, we st our initial foray into the Muslim world was uh, to depose a uh, elected official in uh, Iran in 1953, and uh, since since 9/11, I think we've made. Uh, several mistakes of that level, and I'm just wondering, uh, from your perspective in Tunisia, what are we currently doing that we shouldn't be doing? Thank you. Another question for the ambassador? Yeah, okay. uh, my name is Peter Samar. I'm from Capital Intel Group and operating in Tunisia and in, in Libya for the last two years. Um, my complaint is a complaint about Tunisian modesty. Uh, it's the biggest problem in Tunisia. You have seen the biggest economic miracle and growth ever in history now in Tunisia. You have people like Coffee Cab, it's a multinational uh, automotive group, $1.1 billion in sales. They do 2% of Delphi's global sales, $600 million of Lear corporations. One tech that just went on the market. We are seeing, we have Anadarko, BP, OMV, and ENI and Shell doing oil exploration, so there's a huge oil boom, we're seeing a lot of that. Um, we're seeing private equity firms like Abrash and others making 20% uh, returns on investment on a yearly basis. 
Uh, my question is, you know, we just need to consolidate these gains, but also bring the best players into the market. Uh, one of the things that is lacking in Tunisia are the real investment banks, Rothschild, Citigroup, Morgan Stanley, um, Apex and Carlyle looking at um, privatization and a possible IPO of Tunisia Telecom. These are the stories that are sort of getting left behind. And one of the biggest things is if you're not there, Honeywell CEO Dave Cote went to Tunisia. First time a CEO of Honeywell's ever gone to Africa, he went to Tunis because Tunis with its operations in Algeria and Libya and, Libya and in, in West Africa was the highest performing unit of all of the Honeywell units. So those who are not there, I would worry about your jobs. Those who are there are going to make miracles for their companies. And I think this is a message that really needs to be told because Tunisia is, you know, the question is now, are you going to join the EU? And you're going to probably be the same as Portugal in five years' time. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay. Uh, another question for the ambassador. Uh, no. Okay, Mr. Ambassador, please. Uh. Thank you. On FIPA, I think I, I, I cannot... Uh, comment better than you, uh, huh? FIPA is uh, an active and a very, uh, uh, very efficient uh, institution uh, in, uh, in Tunisia. Uh, on direct flight, uh, I think it's uh, the story of the, uh, the chicken and the eggs, huh? uh, which is uh, create traffic as the, the link or the public, the, uh, the the passengers, huh? uh, but uh, it is uh, for us uh, a real uh, objective huh? uh, in order to establish a direct flight between the United States uh, and, uh, and, and Tunisia. It helps uh, business and it helps tourism, huh? and uh, I think it's, it will be necessary in the near future. Thank you. On, uh, what U.S. Uh, is doing in Tunisia, uh, I think U.S. is do doing very, very well in Tunisia. Um, <coughs> uh, we have to encourage U.S. Huh, to accompany Tunisia in its uh, democratic travel. Um, what U.S. Uh, should not do in, uh, in Tunisia, no, we have received from uh, United States uh, since the revolution, uh, many uh, programs and tools. Uh, but uh, we would like uh, to avoid uh, the multiplications of these small and inefficient tools and to build a long-term and visible program, coherent program, huh, focused on two or three uh, priorities for Tunisia, which are uh, entrepreneurship, job creation, and education. Uh, we would like now to assemble all this with uh, our American friends and uh, to, uh, uh, to put more synergy between all the, all the um, agencies and to put a, a visible and efficient uh, uh, program on uh, technical and financial uh, cooperation. <coughs> on the U.S. miracle, uh, on the Tunisian miracle, uh, thank you. But uh, I think uh, I think now uh, uh, we are recovering our uh, our economy. I think we need now to recover. We are uh, 
reaching now the the pre-revolution levels but we need to, to speed up this recovery uh, in order to absorb the unemployment and uh, and to attract more uh, uh, investments thank you okay <clears throat> thank you uh, next bill lawrence yes your question uh, first of all congratulations to the Maghreb center you najib naeshi and peterson and uh, the national council for putting together a really thank excellent you. event today uh, my question's for Caroline, although others can. I don't, know, I don't know how to pronounce your last name, so I'll call you Caroline. Um, uh, but anyone else who'd like to answer can chime in. Um, when uh, uh, the former head of the central bank, Nebley, was here uh, in 2012 uh, speaking at CSIS, he talked about um, how unimportant uh, relative to macroeconomic uh, uh, indicators the whole microeconomic question was. And I'm really glad that you, Caroline, uh, kind of challenged Nebley's view in saying that you know corruption and, and all of the uh, things related to the microeconomic development are essential to all this. Now, uh, last year there was an event at Stimson where a senior Tunisian economic advisor who went unnamed after being challenged three times admitted that corruption's gotten worse in Tunisia um, uh, since since the revolution. And and part of this is I would say, um, and here I'm talking about challenges rather than just the, good, the, the happy stories of Tunisia, um, a transfer of control from these 245 companies, I, I counted them from your slide, uh, uh, to from some sort of one set of opaque owners to another set of, in some cases, more opaque owners. And he admitted in the Stimson Center event that, that the Tunisian uh, corruption had actually gotten worse at that level. And so my question is, given that 50% of Tunisian economic, uh, 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 citizens who work work in the informal sector given that 30 percent of economic activity is in the informal sector you know and given that a lot of people would say we're not worried about the guy with the cart out in front of monoprix we're worried about monoprix and who controls their monopoly rights to a kind of opaquely controlled market of distribution of food right um uh, how do we do this the traditional uh, public sector can do public works and and you know hire people in the government, but there's limits on you know what, what what the externalities of that are. The traditional private sector there's limits, mining, agriculture. There's only so much you can do there, and mm -hmm. so we're all talking here about entrepreneurship, right? But and and so this is the sort of other part of the same question: H How much can entrepreneurship really absorb for the short and medium term, or do mm -hmm. we have to rely on a sort of public sector push? and a traditional private sector push to get us through the J-curve, because I describe your, your graph as a J-curve, you know, uh, on to two, three years hence, when, uh, when the entrepreneurship efforts will really start to matter in terms of job creation. Okay. That's my question. Good question, thank you. Um, is it, let, maybe you could answer that, Caroline, please? Yeah. <laughs> Um, one thing is corruption is really hard to tackle, and I think we've seen that in Eastern Europe, where many of the countries are more corrupt now than they were in the past. Um, I'm thinking Bulgaria, Romania, where the scandals just, you know, sort of multiply. Um, um, that said, you know, crony capitalism can work for you and it can work against you. So in Korea, Crony capitalism was Indonesia, there was crony capitalism, but they really grew fast. 
And I mean, what I'm saying here now probably is not politically correct, whatever, but the Tunisian type of crony capitalism didn't work well. And my own personal view on this is it has to do with how um, open your economy is. That if your crony capitalism has to compete with foreigners, so as the chai balls in Korea do, they're, they're productive enough to compete in the global economy, there's still something that's going to rise up to be productive in those firms, and, and, and it's going to work because at least you have investment and resources to use. In a crony capitalism that's protecting little monopolies for your small domestic country, you're never going to get growth for that country. So what I would say is, you know, obviously a cleaner investment code, more, more you know, simple rules, eliminating, eliminating some of the regulations. Tunisia improved very much on the doing business indicators, but they didn't implement the reforms. So they put them in the law, but they didn't actually change things. So implement some of those types of doing business style reforms and open to foreign direct investment. You know, you talk about entrepreneurship, but Tunisia, in Tunisia, 83% um, of firms are one people firms. Those firms are not gonna produce a lot. Less than 1% of firms have more than 50 employees. You get one Intel like Costa Rica did, that's 20% of their exports. You get a firm like that, you're talking jobs. It's not going to happen by one people firms. I'm sorry. SMEs are a nice concept. They sound good, but they're not going to get the kind of jobs and growth that Tunisia needs. Thank you. <coughs> uh, okay, you, 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 they're waiting behind you. Either. But they, okay. I was saying they were waiting over there for. Ah, okay. See, there's a line. I, I can wait. I can go behind there. <laughs> That's okay. Right. Go ahead, since you're here. Right? My turn. <laughs> okay. Uh, my Thank name is Ken Dorf with Sag Harbor Consulting. Uh, first of all, I'm a former Peace Corps volunteer in Tunisia, <laughs> and and actually in our year they had the highest rate of intermarriage between uh, Peace Corps volunteers and locals. So we were really enthusiastic <laughs> about Tunisia. Uh, for the first, thank you, panelists, some very thoughtful discussion. Since the revolution for the past few years, I've been working a lot in Tunisia with the World Bank and with the government on market and economic reform. Uh, I'm also coincidentally working in Morocco on investment funds, so I really see the competition between the two. And I agree with you. I think in the longer term, Tunisia has a better brand, personally. And it's not just because I was in the Peace Corps, but I really believe that, that if they made the proper reforms. The question I have is what you were talking about, Dr. Freund, about how to avoid the wrong direction reforms. Uh, and I'll give you some very specific examples. I, I, I'm looking a lot at STB, Société Tunisienne de Banque, which is a very large, typical, badly run state bank, overstaffed, you know, bad loans to the uh, private, to the tourism. At the same time, Tunis Air, which is also ineffective. When we're talking about why there's no direct flights, partly it's because Tunis Air is a monopoly and it's badly run, it's overstaffed. Uh, it's Morocco, Turkey have much more efficient open sky systems and there has been uh, a resistance to opening up Tunisia to market reforms for those reasons. I think three to five years when those market reforms could happen, privatization, whatever you want, yes, there would be a much more vibrant economy, but it's getting there. Uh, after a populist revolution, the, the, tr the tendency will want to be always to offer more to the to people under stress. I, and that's, that's natural. So my, my question really is, 
what can the American government do, the Tunisian government, others who care about Tunisia to help them over the hump th through this really painful period where people, I, I know so many unemployed and underemployed Tunisians right now who are desperate to get them over the hump, but also have the confidence that these market reforms will create more jobs three to five years from now. Okay. Thank you. I guess your question is directed to anybody, Caroline everybody. And Andrew. Actually, you all you all spoke on this. <laughs> it's an important issue. Andrew, what can the U.S. government do more? <laughs> it's his question, more or less. If you um, want, yeah. Well, I think the big push uh, has to come from the Tunisians themselves, and so we're at really a critical point where they've set out a roadmap, um, and they're going to have to stick with it. Um, it this is not going to be easy to do. Um, I think we have to stay optimistic, and we have to see a, a path that's there. Now, we, we are looking at ways that we can help um, Tunisia to create some space uh, so that they can make the reforms. And, and we talked about, I mean, talked about some of the shifts in fiscal spending. That's not done in a void. It's not all of a sudden I take it from one pot, put in another magic. It happens. It does take time to, to, uh, to make that transition go. So I think if there was one thing we can do is, is to really identify those in the Tunisian government who are spearheading reform, who need that support there, and help them to push their own policies. Of course, involved in that, I think there are, there are technical assistance things that can be done, bring some of the, 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 the know-how, which my, you know, my colleagues in the, the international financial institutions, the IMF and the World Bank and the African Development Bank are, are, are already doing. Um, so I, I, on the one hand, I, there's always more that one can do, but I, I hear uh, the ambassador who stated very clearly, let's keep our priorities clear, let's not get a proliferation of all these little programs that get us, uh, get us bogged down. Thank you, thank you for the answer. <coughs> um, next. Um, heard many references to the importance of you know, U the U.S.'s commitment to Tunisia and the partnership and foreign investment. And my question is, we haven't heard any mention of the U.S. travel warning that's been in state for about a year and a half. And so I'm curious, is that because it's completely irrelevant, or to what degree is that warning inhibiting some of this investment? And maybe in addition, to what degree is it perhaps somewhat in conflict with the perception of this, this U.S. commitment to Tunisia? Thank you. That's who wants to answer this. I didn't know there was a travel warning. Yeah, so I, I think this is, uh, I'll try to, to shot at that. This is something that, that often comes up in, in, in some of the countries that I've worked in that have gone through difficult uh, periods. And, and I, I wouldn't get too hung up on what that travel warming says as a, as a signaling uh, device. Um, the U.S. has some of its own laws and the government has some of its own obligations that tend to drive how that warning is put out and when it can be uh, can be changed. I, I think one of the best ways to overcome uh, potential negative impacts from that is people actually go and engage in Tunisia and then the word gets uh, back. And I don't think that's the real uh, inhibitor. We, we in the State Department cannot get beyond some of the, uh, the legal requirements that we have that kind of shape those, those warnings. Thank you. Yes? Okay. Um, Job prospects for youth are different from 
for kids from Sidi Bou Said or if they're from Sidi Bou Zid. And the attention that was paid to the macro indicators of economic health before the Arab Spring wouldn't have shown, um, wouldn't have necessarily shown that there, there would be that potential. But maybe focus on subnational, these subnational issues um, could, have, could have drawn attention to the neglect that was going on in certain regions. So I'm wondering what, um, if anything, um, is there a push for investment in the interior of the country? What does that look like? Um, how is the U.S. involved in that? Thank yeah, sure. Good question. And who wants to answer? Maybe Mr. Ambassador. Mr. Ambassador. Yeah, yes. I think we are we are exploring with our American friends how to uh, how to be how to Tunisia be eligible for the MCC compact because now uh, our Tunisian indicators. Um, MCC being the millennium. Millennium, yeah. Uh, yeah. Our indicators, uh, Tunisian national indicators, now didn't allow Tunisia to be eligible to these uh, funds. But uh, we are thinking uh, we have the, our uh, our uh, poor uh, region, inland region which reach the MCC, uh, uh, the MCC funds requirements. And we think that is a very good and uh, adapted instruments and funding for, uh, for our uh, uh, the region, this, uh, this region, this poor region. Thank you. OK, please. <coughs> oh, you are OK. I'm Gary Kleiman. Uh, I lived in Tunisia 30 years ago under a business exchange program and perhaps inspired, I went on to found my own firm that specializes in independent analysis and advice on emerging financial markets. And I would just like to make you an offer, reinforcing perhaps some of the messages the ambassador made about new ideas, uh, the State Department representative about international financial initiatives, and that is to resume what was once a pretty robust outreach to the mainstream banking and capital markets community uh, in the U.S. and elsewhere, uh, portfolio managers, banks, stock and bond market investors who are still interested in Tunisia, regardless of a ratings downgrade, regardless of the government emphasis on a guarantee back issue. And I will point out very concretely that recently, uh, with the constitutional approval, there has been a rally on the stock market that is getting some investor attention, whereas all other emerging markets, or particularly the better known ones, are very much in the tank. So there is that <coughs> community that could be harnessed, both from a financing and policy input perspective, because what you'll hear from that community might be very harsh in terms of the exchange controls that still exist, the caps on bank lending rates, uh, the slow privatization process. But regardless, it's important, I think, to harness this community. It's done very unconventionally, but it can be done very cost-effectively and pragmatically. And you have a very critical six-month window, I think, now, where that sort of input could be very beneficial. Want to talk about this? Someone wants to? That was more of a comment. Yeah, it was more of a comment. I think it's well taken. It's we uh, the audience, the uh, 
We agree. <laughs> yeah, please. Thank you. My name is Dr. Latiri. I'm former director of WHO and representative of the organization in different countries. But, but before all that, I'm a Tunisian. And I am very proud to be a Tunisian. Not just because of the new constitution, but because we need our, your help and we need to, get, to work together to achieve what Mr. Ambassador has already indicated. The question. Today, the cup is half full. The other half, it will be full, inshallah. The, the, uh, His Excellency, the Ambassador, and all the other speakers have indicated, gave their opinion how the, half, the other half would be full. There is one ingredient that was not mentioned, and that is the health of the population. A healthy population will be will make it easy for the economic programs to be achieved. A healthy population is the key for achievements in growth. The question that I have is, Mr. Ambassador asked his first request in his presentation. He said he would like to see a negotiation or discussion with the, with the Department of State or with the government of the US to establish a free trade agreement. I would like to ask, how is it possible that to be achieved? Thank you. Thank you. So the question is, uh, I guess the only one who can answer that is <laughs> Representative Andrew, please. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to take a, a shot at that. I, I think that um, the, if the focus is simply on getting an agreement, a free trade agreement, um, that doesn't get it the root of the challenges uh, that will increase U.S. trade and investment. Um, and I, I think some of the other speakers uh, talked about some of those challenges uh, that need to, be, to need to be faced. But the good news in all of this is we already do have a trade and investment framework agreement with Tunisia. So there, there is not the same thing as a free trade agreement, but it is the beginning of, it's a forum for us to have a dialogue about the concrete things that can take place, the changes that can take place that will increase a trade and investment between our two countries. We also have been pursuing, uh, pursuing what we call trade investment partnerships with countries in the region, including Tunisia. And we, we have discussions on basic principles that need to be laid out on, on the way forward. So I, I think the good news in it is that that is something that is really already in progress. I can't say that there will be a you know, free trade negotiations uh, uh, tomorrow started, but I think there is a framework on those discussions and a recognition that the future of, of both of our countries lies in expanding our economic engagement, which means more trade and investment. Thank you. Please, yes. I just wanted to add to it, because I've worked uh, extensively on free trade agreements, that um, one, the U.S. does have agreements with countries in the region, including Morocco and Jordan. Um, it's a process to negotiate them. Um, often, actually, the Peterson Institute 
uh, does studies of what a free trade agreement would give to both sides as a start. Mm -hmm. And uh, just, I'm not doing that to market, but it actually is uh, what, what, what happens. And, um, and, and, you know, it's a discussion and it's really USTR, I think, needs to move and, you know, it, it takes some time. But I think Tunisia, Tunisia and Bahrain is another country US in the, in the region has an agreement with. So I think it's, um, it is something that's feasible. Tunisia has a lot of the, the right qualities. The issue for Tunisia would be if they were to get in that negotiation, let's say the US is open to it, just hypothetically, if they were to get into that negotiation to use it to make reforms um, mm -hmm. that would help the economy to grow. Morocco did not take advantage of the agreement. So if you look at Morocco, trade exports from U.S. increased to Morocco following the agreement, but there was no supply response from Morocco. And it's because they didn't have the infrastructure in place to take advantage of that agreement. So it's not just about getting an agreement, it's about using that agreement to leverage reform and then grow the economy. I, I, in the case of Morocco, I'm personally aware of what the World Bank and USAID did. Uh, they, they helped them in the agribusiness sector, more specifically. They um, helped Morocco uh, improve its production in capacity, its capa uh, productive capacity and quality in order to be able to sell to the United States. Because you're right, I mean, what to sell to the United States? You have to produce enough <laughs> and of a quality that is uh, reaches the American standards, basically. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. okay. Uh, I'm sorry. A brief comment on that. Yeah, we only um, have a few. Uh, uh, doctor, is it, how do you pronounce your name, Dr. Freund, so all of us can get it right? Freund is known as a former. Freund. Okay. Hey, super. That's yeah, a good guess. Yes. <laughs> um, of the Arab countries that have free trade agreements, uh, Dr. Freund mentioned uh, Morocco. Uh, there's also Jordan, <coughs> and there's also B Bahrain, and also uh, Oman. The o Oman representative was housed in our office for most of a year working out the details for that. Um, and so I think to come back to the ambassador's point, we want to elevate the relationship to a strategic partnership, not just friends, not just allies, but a strategic partnership. Now, a strategic partnership means multifaceted, it means multiple interest, and it means long-term. And it allows each side, to a greater degree than before, to anticipate things between us, to predict things between us, to plan for things between us, to prepare for things between us. We want all four of those things in our daily lives. We want them for our children. We want them for our family. If we don't have those four things, life is a bit more precarious, uh, less predictable, less productive, arguably less successful or less effective. So the ambassador hit the right note that um, elevate this relationship. It certainly has meant that to Bahrain and Oman and Jordan. I know in my relations with all of them that it means that they are special, that they are a partner from, of the United States, the world's sole superpower still, 
the American century of last century is being prolonged. And part of its prolongation is through free trade agreements. So uh, Tunisia is sort of overdue for this uh, special uh, treatment or focus or identification and acknowledgement, all of those things. Um, uh, just wanted to say that about the free trade agreements, even if the trade levels are not impressive or they don't have the statistical <laughs> numbers that Dr. Freund pointed out in her extraordinary presentation. Uh, it means a hell of a lot to the governmental stability and to the political dynamics in the country. Thank you. We only have a few minutes left, and we have two questions. Uh, they, they will be the last ones. Which we only have a few minutes left. Jonathan Kutab, an attorney. Uh, His Excellency the Ambassador spoke uh, about the need for attracting uh, U.S. investments and U.S. businesses to do business into Tunisia. So my question is, have there been any recent laws or procedures uh, that will in fact uh, attract uh, such businesses? And are there any on the books that we can expect in the near future will be in fact passed to achieve that purpose? Laws and procedures. Yes, I said that uh, a new investment code will be adopted in the upcoming weeks. Uh, the, the I said that uh, uh, a new investment code will be adopted in the upcoming weeks, uh, and the feature of this code uh, will offer better guarantees for investors, particularly in arbitration, uh, better access to markets, uh, automatic access to incentives, and we have a lot of incentives, uh, granted bonuses to investment based on performance and uh, optimal simplification of a procedure and support of investors. It's, uh, it's uh, I think, uh, uh, our new code, uh, which is more liberal, and uh, it can make it make a difference uh, and uh, we we will organize some uh, some um, uh, some road road shows uh, in order to 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 make it uh, better known thank you thank you hello uh, joyce holiday from the international association of african ngos uh, i heard a bit about uh, subsidies being uh, the revenue generated from subsidies being used to alleviate uh, the plights of the less privileged. We often hear that you know, from a lot of uh, developing countries, that revenue generated from uh, subsidies will be used to improve the lives of the masses. And at the end of the day, that does not happen. I'm a Nigerian, and we were told in Nigeria that the uh, oil subsidy, or gas subsidy, was going to be used to increase employment and uh, improve the lives of the masses, and that never happened. And I see that in uh, even the emerging markets of Africa, Latin America and Caribbean as well. So I'm interested in the strategies that Tunisia has in place to ensure that the, the revenue generated from subsidies are targeted uh, properly. I think uh, uh, the Tunisians and uh, the, the government of Tunisia uh, is aware that we need to complete and to, uh, uh, and to continue uh, some reforms, some structural reforms, like uh, 
rationalizing the subsidy system mainly. Uh, but uh, the problem is the moment because the real challenge for this government is how to balance short-term populist measures with a clear long-term and necessary reforms. And that's the game now. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, we will have to uh, wrap it up now. We uh, seven and a few minutes. So, uh, sure. uh, Dr. Uh, you want to say a few things and uh, and goodbye I'll to everyone. Just I'll just <laughs> clo close it. Thank you. Um, in the spirit of looking f to increase our knowledge and understanding, no one has mentioned uh, the following two things about Tunisia: uh, that everybody works, and um, most people who work appreciate organization. Uh, in all of the Arab world, all of the Middle Eastern world, all of the Islamic world, no country has had a trade union movement like Tunisia. Anybody who's been to Tunisia knows that. We're talking about a billion and a half people in the Islamic world. No country remotely has had a trade union movement like Tunisia's, point one. Point two, is that look where it is on the map, sandwiched between Libya and Algeria, next door and in getting its independence from 1954 to 1962. Um, at the time of independence, one out of 8.5 Algerians was an orphan, okay? It was the bloodiest, most vicious, horrific, uh, path to national sovereignty and political independence of any in the Arab world, arguably any in the Middle East, arguably any in the Islamic world, okay? That's right next door. And then look at what's happening, been happening in, Tunis in Libya, right next door. So this is uh, an oasis, an island of stability that is uh, less well known than it needs to be known and less well understood than it needs to be understood. Um, this session has been, all of these speakers, extraordinary. Please join me in thanking them for giving us the cerebral massage. <laughs>